Well, before we begin this morning, I just wanted to highlight one thing that we're going to bring to the Lord in prayer. Uh, little Brent Phillips uh, took a little fall up here, uh, Nate and Emily's son, and uh, it seems like he took a little fall in the service. He kind of bit through his lip a little bit, and so they're off to the ER, uh, Emily and Brent. So we just want to, he's fine, he doesn't appear to be concussed or anything like that, but uh, they just want to be safe. So we're going to pray for little Brent um, as well before we begin uh, with the sermon. Let's pray. God, we gather here to worship you, to glorify you, to adore you. And now, Lord, we want to do that over the text of your word. So please clear our minds of distraction, focus our hearts on your steadfastness, your goodness, and on the love of Christ for us. God, we also want to pray for uh, little Brent. God, that he, would be, uh, he wouldn't be alarmed or scared by any of this, but that he would be uh, comforted by the presence of his mother, and I pray that um, he would heal quickly. And Lord, we thank you for the Phillips family. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter 2. So we're continuing a sermon series through the book of Philippians. And now we come to chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse 1, and we're going to read down to verse 11. It's that first large paragraph in chapter 2 of Philippians. Let's begin in Philippians 2.1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name." So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in our journey through the book of Philippians, we have come to a landmark text. This text is a milestone in this book, in the New Testament, in the Bible's revelation of Jesus Christ. This text contains an impassioned plea from the Apostle Paul for the church to be unified even homogenous in very important ways. And this text also contains what's called the, the Carmen Christi, uh, the hymn to Christ, one of the most beloved passages in Paul's writings. So, in order to give sufficient treatment to this text, we're actually going to split it into two sermons. But it won't necessarily be like a break down the middle, we take the first half of the text, and then we take the second half of the text. This morning, I'll preach through the whole text, verses, verse 1 to verse 11. And we'll seek to understand the text, hopefully, as Paul understood it to be, uh, meant for it to be understood. We'll follow his logic through the text. We'll make observations and applications throughout. We'll cover points of unity and humility and Christ's example of those things shining forth for us. But this passage, especially verses 5 to 11, that second half of this passage, tells us so much about Christ, his divine nature, his work on the cross, his exaltation, that it seems prudent to step outside of sort of the flow of Paul's thought through the book of Philippians, pause, and just take a week to admire some of the theological points that we see about Christ here, some of the insights we receive about his nature and his work and his person, and then place that back into how Paul means it to be understood in the context in which we've received it. So of the next two sermons, this morning's will be more textual, proceeding through the text of Philippians 2, 1 through 11, and then the next sermon, a few weeks from now, will be more theological, 
focusing on the person of Jesus Christ and what we learn about him from this text. So let's begin. So let's start here. I'll have three points, the first of which will be, one, Paul's heartfelt appeal. So Paul's heartfelt appeal. And we'll start here in verse 1 in the beginning of verse 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, complete my joy. So let's start with the first word here. So. We've got a so on our hands. We should treat this like a therefore. So this. You don't start a conversation with the word therefore. Right? You don't just, hey, therefore, why? Because therefore appeals to something prior. The word so here points back to something that came before. Because of that, this. Now, if you've got a, a New American Standard or an ASV, you'll see the word therefore there. In the ESV, you'll see the word so. But these are uh, pretty synonymous words, so we're going to treat this like it's a therefore. So our question is immediately, on what idea or what ideas that have come before is Paul now basing the text that we have in front of us today? This appeal to unity and humility. What's he basing that on? Well, before we look backwards, I want us to look forward briefly for just a second. So something about the grammar of our text is important here. When we look at the first verse of chapter 2, Okay, and keep your Bibles open in front of you. We're going to be referencing those a lot. It's an important book. So when we look at the first verse of chapter 2, everything from the word if to the word sympathy is sort of there to just build up that imperative verb complete. Right? So therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if there's any affection, if there's any sympathy, complete my joy. So if we wanted to sort of simplify the grammar here and simplify what Paul is saying, we could say, therefore, complete my joy. Okay? So again, I'm just trying to say, okay, let's keep our eyes open for what we should be looking for in the end of chapter 1 by seeing what he's actually going to say to us in the beginning of chapter 2. So, therefore, complete my joy. But let's, let's do that again. Let's simplify it a little bit more. What does he say? He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord in one mind. So, what Paul, where Paul's going to go with this text is he's going to say, okay, therefore, so, be unified. Be of one mind. Have one love. Okay? So let's look back at the end of chapter 1 and see if we see anything that looks like that. So let's go back to verse 27 in chapter 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Therefore, be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord. Have one mind. Why does Paul start this chapter with a so or a therefore? Because he's He's renewing that appeal to unity that he made at the end of chapter 1. He said, I want to hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind. Same exact thing he's going to say in chapter 2. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You remember we spoke about that in that sermon. This unity that, that's there in suffering and in conflict. So he says, therefore... Complete my joy by being of the same mind. And note, he does this also in the immediate context of his own suffering, this conflict that he's engaged in, and that they are engaged in. So Paul is extolling these, these wonderful blessings that come from Christ, encouragement from Christ, participation in the Spirit, affection, sympathy, while he's engaged in conflict. He's sitting in prison, actually, writing this. And so he's offering these things to them, holding up these wonderful truths for their acknowledgement, their enjoyment, even while they and he 
are engaged in conflict and suffering. And even though he's writing this from prison, he still says to them that his joy can be made complete by their unity. So remember, that's our big verb that things are leading up to here. He says, be of one mind, even though you're suffering, I'm suffering, we're engaged in the same suffering, you can complete my joy by being of the same mind, by being unified. So, in spite of the grave conflict in which Paul's involved, they have the ability to make his joy complete. And if I could just pause for a brief moment of application here, uh, you realize our joy, your joy, is to some degree in my hands. My joy's in your hands. Like, we, we have some responsibility for each other's joy in the body of Christ. You have the opportunity, by your love, your faithfulness, your obedience, to wield great positive influence over the joy of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And this could be true in a variety of ways, a variety of relationships in which this could manifest, but I'll just use one illustration from this church. Adult members of Emmanuel Church, let me ask you a question. Does it not warm your hearts to see the witness, the conduct, the disposition of the youth of Emmanuel Church? Does it just make you glad to see the way that the young people of this church deal with one another? When you see how sweet they are to one another, the respect that they show to those who are older and wiser than them, the care they show to those who are younger than them, they seek to be helpful, seems like at every turn, they seem to exude love for Christ and for this church, this body. Young men and women of Emmanuel Church, let me speak to you. It brings us joy. It makes our hearts glad to see your faithfulness. It completes our joy to see you of one mind and one accord. You have that influence over us. And we hope that you use it well. That you're not given to childishness, drama, gossip, backbiting, petty disagreement. What's happening there is just like the Philippian saints possess the ability to make Paul more joyful, so in this instance, you, youth of Emmanuel Church, young men and women of Emmanuel Church, you have the ability, the opportunity, you can gladden our hearts by your obedience, your faithfulness, and your love for one another. But again, that could be true of any number of relationships in the church. There are other groups in the church, other relationships in the church, in which that can manifest. But we have the ability to influence, positively or negatively, the joy of our brothers and sisters around us. So, that covers the word so. Now, if, I'm just kidding. Well, actually, we will talk about if, but let's look forward here. Paul gives the following things as foundations for what he's about to command them to do. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, if there's any affection, any sympathy, how are we to understand these phrases? Because they're constructed in a strange sort of fashion. And it makes it kind of difficult to see exactly what's being referred to here. For instance, is Paul saying, quote, Philippians, if God has given you any encouragement in Christ, if you have been comforted from his love, if you've participated in his spirit together, then be of one mind. Like if all these things are true about you, be unified. Or is he saying, if you would encourage me in Christ, if you would comfort me in love, if we participate, Paul and the Philippians, together in the same spirit, if you feel affection for me, sympathy for me, then complete my joy by being unified. See, there's a slight difference in the way that you can interpret those things. Who's doing the comforting? Who's being encouraged? Who is sympathetic toward whom? Is Paul highlighting the fact that they participate in the same spirit, the Philippians do, and should be unified? Or is Paul highlighting the fact that he and they participate in the same spirit, and so that they should complete his joy by being unified? 
You might be relieved to hear me say, I really don't think it matters that much. Uh, Not because these sorts of exegetical questions are unimportant, because they're not. They are important. But it seems clear to me in these four if statements, Paul isn't trying, and this happens in a few places in Philippians actually, Paul's not trying to lay out a a logical, rational, Romans-style group of phrases or propositions here. What's he doing? He's he's appealing to them, imploring them. He's he's making an emotional appeal to them. So what does he do? He, He piles on these emotionally laden exhortations and incentives. By any means, brothers, if you'll be unified, if there's any encouragement in Christ, affection, sympathy, if we participate in the same spirit, if there's comfort from love, be unified and complete my joy by doing so. So it's, it's an emotional appeal that he's making to the Philippians. I think this even comes through in the word if. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, Paul's not saying, well, maybe there is, maybe there's not. It's not that kind of conditional statement. Is there encouragement in Christ? I don't know if. That's not what we're getting at here. It seems the if here. Is more like a like a sense, S I N C E. Imagine this: you have been falsely accused of some horrible crime. Your friends and family and neighbors all distrust you now. Your reputation is cast into doubt, and you have a very close friend who asks you, "Be straight with me. Did, did you do this?" Did you do this thing that you're being accused of? And you say to them, if you count me as a friend, believe me that I did not do this. Now what are you saying there? Am I your friend? No. You're saying, because I'm your friend, since I'm your friend, trust me precisely because we are such friends. I think that's kind of the sense that we get here from this word if. Precisely because there's so much encouragement in Christ. Precisely because there's comfort from love and participation in the Spirit. Complete my joy by being of one mind, one love, full accord. So that's Paul's heartfelt appeal to them. Second, the church's unity through humility, and this is the, 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 the beating heart of this text. The church's unity through humility. So what does Paul say? Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now the word mind here, you should have picked up, that's pretty significant because it's, it's said twice. We've got accord, love, same mind, one mind, and we saw at the end of chapter 1, Same thing, be of one mind. So that's important. And it's actually part of like a a, a pattern of those sort of cognitive statements that runs through the book of Philippians. So I think that it's intentional that it's repeated. So what do we mean by mind here? Should we assume that this is doctrinal unity? Be of one mind, you know, think the same things. Agree doctrinally. Now Paul says that in different places. I don't think that's wrong. I don't think it's what's being said here. And the context will bear that out. And we're not, note, we're not talking similar minds, similar attitudes, be kind of like one another in this way. No, one. Have one mind among all of you. Full accord. Not partial, not some accord. Complete accord. One single mind. And one thing that I want to point out here, and this, we just saw this in verse 1 as well, it seems like there's these sort of repetitive elements, these phrases that Paul strings together, and I mentioned that in verse 1, that this is sort of a, an emotional appeal, he's, he's piling this on, and he kind of does it here as well, right? He says the same thing, it seems, over and over again, complete my joy by being of the same mind, have the same love, be of full accord, have one mind just piling on these statements, repetitive nature of this. And this isn't careless or sloppy from Paul. 
Paul is laboring to move them to obedience in this, in this regard. He want, it's going to complete his joy to see them unified in this way. So he's, he's appealing to them. He's earnest with them in this text. And I think that the repetitive nature of these statements shows that. He really wants them to be unified. And so he's trying to stir them up to that unity. So just as the Spirit wants to do that with us today through the same text. So Paul's language here leaves no room for division, no room for faction among Christ's body. We have the same mindset, the same attitudes, we have the same love. We are at full accord, one-minded. Imagine walking into a church where this was done perfectly. It doesn't exist, but imagine. What might it be like Everyone in the room is 100% on board that we share the same loves, we have one mind, we are in full accord with one another. How would people speak to one another? In what ways would people serve one another in that context? How would they treat their pastors? How would they handle disputes? No room for gossip, never backbiting, now, obviously, no church has ever been or ever will be perfect on, in this life, this one included. And yet, here's this language staring us in the face. Be of one mind. Share the same love. Be in full accord. May God's Spirit bind our hearts together such that this one of unity pre- prevails in our midst. That other churches would, would notice, boy, that's a... That's a special group of people over there that unbelievers would walk in and what is with these people? Different. What is it about them? It's the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But how do we see, how do we, how do, we do this? How do we see this kind of thing happen in our, in our church? Even though we can't do it perfectly, how do, we, how do we find obedience in this area? What are the hindrances here and how do we overcome them? Well, in this text, as we'll see, the threat to this type of unity is not enemies from without. It's not false doctrine. It's not divisive hate mongers necessarily. It's selfishness. It's self-centeredness. Being overly concerned about you and yours and insufficiently concerned with those around you. Let's see this mentioned explicitly. Let's keep reading. Be of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what Paul does, he takes these two pairs, negative and positive comments. So don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. Instead, count others more significant. Don't just be looking at your own interests, Instead, look to the interests of others. Now, selfish ambition, that sounds kind of, kind of grandiose. You know, oh, well, selfish ambition, I don't really see that in me. You hear that and you think, oh, well, people who are selfishly ambitious are, you know, high-profile, cutthroat sort of business people out there on the global stage making big moves. Those people are selfishly ambitious, Well, listen to some of the other ways that this word has been translated in other versions of the Bible. And that's not always a trustworthy metric for judging what a word means in the New Testament, but there is so much variety among even reliable versions uh, that I think it bears mentioning. Selfish ambition, faction, rivalry, envy, selfishness, strife, contention. Last week in our equip class on Romans, in Romans 2, uh, we talked about how Paul says, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, there will be wrath and fury. Same word. Self-seeking, selfish ambition. Same author, both from Paul. Now those things sound like things that you can definitely recognize in yourself. And if you don't, I would just ask you, do you know yourself? Have you looked? Have you considered your own heart? 
envy, rivalry, wanting things other people have, selfishness, being concerned, not even just hostile thoughts towards others, but a lack of thought towards others. Just thinking about yourself, your comfort, your leisure, your relief from your troubles, and not considering those of your brothers and sisters. These are things we can definitely recognize in ourselves. Selfish ambition isn't just something experienced by people that are jockeying for positions in corporate boardrooms somewhere. Selfish ambition is, it's in there. Similarly with conceit. You might think, well, I'm not conceited. Well, I always say this is what Rafiki says in The Lion King. Look hard. <laughs> right? I'm not conceited. That's not me. Well, hey, look harder. Look more closely. You don't see conceit? The King James translates this word, vainglory. Hear that? Glory, pride, vain, vanity. Vain pride. Pride without basis. Pride without justification. And guess what? No pride in your heart or my heart has any justification. Ever. Any pride you experience is vain pride. Vain glory. Conceitedness. Large thoughts of yourself for no reason. We all lack any reason for pride. So, you feel pride you feel selfishness? This is you. This is me. So instead of those things, instead of self-centeredness, instead of pride, we're supposed to count others more significant than ourselves. You are more significant than me. You're more important than me. I've got problems. You've got problems. Your problems are more important. That's supposed to be our our default disposition towards one another. Let's think about this. What does it mean that someone is more significant than you are? Well, they're important. They receive praise and honor. You're subordinate to them. You serve them. They don't go without. They're important. I can go without. I'm unimportant. They're important. They don't go without. We make a big deal about them. That's how you're supposed to reckon your brother and your sister. That's how you're to count them, how to consider them. I grew up in Kernersville. And I remember when uh, President Bush, George W. Bush, visited the, the John Deere Hitachi plant in Kernersville. It's a big deal. The town all but shut down. Uh, people flocked out to the streets to see the, the motorcade go by. Why? It's a very important person in a pretty unimportant place. Now, if you're from Kernersville, that's not an insult. I grew up in Kernersville. We're just not big actors on the world stage, yet. Um, very important person, pretty insignificant place, but how does that look on like an individual level? Instead of a small town honoring a head of state, it's you showing deference and honor to your brother or sister next to you. In what ways can you communicate to them, really actually sincerely communicate to your brothers and sisters, you are extremely significant? Not me, you. Let's talk about you. Well, I think Paul gives us some insight into that question with the next statement. Let each of you, verse 4, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, we should note the word interests here. If you look in the Greek, you know Greek. You're looking at the Greek text here. This was originally written in Greek. The word interests isn't there. There's no word that they said, oh, that word means interests. It's supplied by the translators to help us kind of better understand the text. It could also be the lack of a word there. It could also just mean things. So let each of you not only look to his own things, but also the things, the matters, the interests, the considerations of your brother, your sister, of others. What a difficult task. Again, do you know yourself well enough to recognize that this is an impossible ask? 
How many of us, when asked, how are you doing? Think, busy. Does that sound familiar? How are you doing? You want to say, how long you got? Busy. I've got so much going on. I have a lot of things happening. We have responsibilities at our jobs, obligations to our families, both immediate and more extended family members. We have duties to our church community, friendships to maintain, sicknesses to deal with. You've got to stay on top of your taxes. You've got to keep your cars running. You've got to exercise. You've got to get enough sleep. The real estate available in our lives often seems pretty much spoken for. No available land left, right? Why? Because we have a bunch of things, interests, stuff going on, grabbing our attention. In fact, in fact, you might even use that very busyness to justify not being able to be involved in the interests of others. So precisely because you're so busy, I can't, you know, I can't be all things to everybody. I can't do all this stuff, and look after your stuff too. But in the Christian economy, apparently, it's better to look after the interests of others, to be invested in the things of others instead of your own interests. And listen, this is completely antithetical to the culture in which we live right now. Don't have kids, they'll keep you from traveling. Don't get married. You won't be able to find yourself. You need some self-care. You deserve some you time. If he's not making you happy, maybe this marriage has run its course. These are par for the course for our present age. A, a sort of an experiment here in um, how much of this can I read without vomiting, um, I pulled up Instagram and searched the hashtag self-care just to see what people had to say. And as you can imagine, I did not have to look far to get the following gems. Self-love isn't vanity, it's sanity. Every decision, different quote, every decision made out of self-love can only lead to joy. Choose your peace over other people every time. You should be your only priority. If they don't value your worth, goodbye. You know, we can smirk at these sort of platitudes while we're sitting here together, but when you're busy, and you're tired, you feel like you don't have much overhead in your schedule, the self-centeredness that underlies those very same platitudes, it starts bubbling up. It starts taking over your decision-making. And so we can listen to those things and scoff at these little social media nuggets about self-love, but when life gets really full, we can find ourselves making our decisions on precisely those bases. I don't feel, I don't feel like doing that. I feel tired. It would, I mean, really, it's a smart thing to do for me to say no to that person. I just don't have, don't have the space, you know? Just, it's a busy season. This is the spirit of our age. Alex said just last week that none of the Beatitudes more directly violates the spirit of the age than blessed are the meek. But we're called by Christ to be just that, meek. Paul entreated the Philippians. The Holy Spirit now entreats us. Don't ignore the things of your brother's life. Don't ignore the interests of your sister. Honor them. Celebrate their wins. Mourn their losses with them. Cheerfully serve them as you have opportunity to do so. Pray for your brothers and sisters that their faith would not fail and that you will together, arm in arm, reach the celestial city. That happens by you taking an interest in their needs, their things, their interests, and not just yours. There's a man who lived uh, almost 200 years ago who I believe exemplified this very well. Um, his name was James H. Combs. He lived over near Reedsville, actually, in the little tiny town of Williamsburg. 
It's right outside of Reedsville. He was my great, great, great grandfather. He was a deacon in a primitive Baptist church out there. He's buried there. And I want to read to you a, a snippet from his obituary. This is written by a man that went to church with him. Quote, Brother Combs was made a deacon a few years before he died. But I want to say that he was a deacon in reality a long time before he was set apart by the church. He was careful to see after the poor of the church. He wanted his pastor and others to live in as good circumstances as himself. The Lord indeed makes the deacon as well as the preacher. And such examples are worthy of our emulation. As a father and neighbor, I can't say too much. He was devoted to his children and they to him. He was one of the best neighbors I ever knew. He seemed to take as much interest in his neighbors as he would a son or a brother. Uh, he once walked the two miles to my house on several occasions on his own accord to assist me, and I could see by his expression that it was a real pleasure for him to do so. For he saw in himself nothing good, but in Christ all fullness. I'll read this extra part here just because it's beautiful. I'll say to his children, do as he did. We miss our brother in our meetings, in our homes, but we do not grieve. For in the last day, he will come forth, be clothed in white, and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob on the right hand of God, there to give praise to him forevermore. I am not competent to portray all the good qualities of this good man. His memory will long live in the hearts of his friends. End quote. This man was a nobody. He's a farmer that lives in a tiny town near a small town. And nobody's remembering this guy. But ironically, here we sit, reflecting on the fact that he counted his neighbor's interests as those of his own son or his own brother. He walks two miles to go help his neighbor, and it's evident in his face that he loves doing it. It's a pleasure. And therefore, the no-name farmer gets, to seat, gets, gets seated with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob at the right hand of God. Uh, this is the, the paradox of Christianity, one of them. We live in obscurity, in humility. We experience suffering, we experience conflict, and yet we are joyful. Yet we're taking interest in one another's needs. And so therefore... Exaltation awaits. Well, as sterling an example as James Combs provides for us, Paul gives a better example. That takes us to our final point, Christ's example of humility. Now, again, we'll pick up several of the Christological issues here next time. So I won't be focusing on all that could be said about Jesus and what this tells us about him. There's a lot that we could say there, but I'll leave much of that detail for next time. I'll just be using this section as Paul does. As an illustration, as an example, as a model of humility. So, Paul says, Have this mind, verse 5, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, I'll say here, without going into a lot of detail on it, I'm preaching from the English Standard Version. Many of you probably have an ESV in front of you. And that text reads, read it carefully, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now let me give you the King James rendering of that. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, do you see the difference there? Have this mind among yourselves, the first part's pretty much the same, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or which was also in Christ Jesus. Uh, the reason I point that out is because virtually no other translations agree with the ESV here. And, and the Greek is simple, straightforward. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. It's, it's very straightforward. Now, that may not seem like a big difference, but it is. Now, let me say, I think both are true. We're not talking about which one of those is true and which one's false. We're asking, which one does Paul mean here? 
And the difference is this. Paul is telling them to look at Christ and recognize the mind that he has and then have that mind. Versus, it's already yours in Christ. It's just a different emphasis here. And what he's emphasizing is, listen, I'm commanding you, imploring you to do something and I'm providing Christ to you as a model here to follow. Have this mind like he had. So we talked about having one mind. Single-minded. What do we mean there? Well, this is what we mean. Have this mind among yourselves. What is that one mind that we all share? What's it to look like? It's to look like this. It's to look like Christ. In fact, it is to be Christ's own mind that we have among ourselves. So, Paul's argument here is, Jesus had this attitude, this mind, this mindset. Now you go about having it too. Be minded this way. He was in the form of God. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, was born in the likeness of men, and then being found in human form, he humbled himself even further to death, even further humiliation, death on a cross, humiliation after humiliation after humiliation for Jesus. So in Christ's example, we see the meek and righteous counterpart to all the ills that Paul just described, excuse me, that Paul just described. Selfish ambition. It's tempting. Christ didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. How unambitious of him. Vain conceit. Pride where it doesn't belong. If anybody has right to boast, it's this one who emptied himself. It's interesting that this section that we've read, his, his front line has emphasized unity. But then by the time we get to the example of Christ, there's nothing about unity. Right? And he's not emphasizing unity in the example of Christ. What's he emphasizing? Humility. Humbleness. The very humility that Paul urged us to in verse 3. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. It's on full display in the life of Christ. And it's ours for the emulating. So, Emmanuel Church, do you want to be of one mind? You want to have unity? You want to share one love? You want to be in full accord? Well, if we want the blessings of that type of unity, we must embrace the duty of Christ-like humility. Humility apparently is the way to get there. It's the example that Paul holds up for us. That's what all the one mind talk is about. It's about having the meek and humble mind of Christ. So we ought to be. Talk about looking at the interests of others and not your own interests. Christ's example shows that in full force. One final application here in closing. It can sometimes feel wrong. It can feel unjust to count others more significant than yourself. You serve, you serve, you serve, and you feel like people don't sufficiently recognize your sacrifices. You feel like your service is neglected, taken for granted, taken advantage of, unappreciated. Let me just say to you, all that's vanity. It's conceit. That's selfish ambition at work. It feels so righteous. You feel like the martyr. Nope. Vainglory. And you know why I say that with such clarity? Because look at the mind he wants us to have. Look at the attitude he wants us to share. Talk about being taken advantage of. Wrongfully, unjustly. You're not going to find a better example of that than Christ. And that's the exact example Paul holds up for our emulation. Christ's mind is supposed to be the one mind that we share. You see Christ who has every reason to be served, 
and not to serve. If anyone in the universe could demand service and should never have to lift a finger, it would be Christ. So, if his equality with God is not a barrier to him serving other people, what's your excuse? I mean, what reason do you or I have to feel like we're being taken advantage of? You feel like your services aren't being properly praised, not sufficiently paid back. That's the point. That's the mind that we're supposed to share. The Son of God made himself of no reputation. So we should not look for reputation in our service to others, in our interests in others. I just wish more people would recognize my sacrifice. Boy, marriage is a, a place where this can thrive. A spouse doesn't acknowledge what I'm doing. I did this, I did this, I did this, and she just did that. I did this, I did this, I did this, and he just does this. Where's my thanks? Where's my praise? Why don't you do what I do? Conceit. Vanity. Pride. Self-centeredness. You're thinking about you. You're not trying to serve your children, serve your wife in that regard. You're just thinking about you, your praise, and your comfort. And that manner of self-pity may seem kind of trivial. Okay, big deal. I feel like I'm you know, not quite appreciated enough. But your flesh, the self-centered nature of the culture in which we live, man, they'll seize that stuff. And before you know it, you resent your spouse and you don't know how you got there. You see your kids as a burden. You groan when they want to play with you and you don't know how you got there. And again, I'm using the family as an example there, but this can happen in the church as well. Your brothers and sisters in Christ seem like an imposition on your schedule. And you, you wonder why you don't love them more. Well, the remedy to these things, if we want fresh vigor and vitality in our service to one another, if we want wind in our sails in the fight against our own self-centeredness, then you've got to have a different mind. You've got to mind yourself a different way. You've got to embrace a different set of attitudes. What mind? What set of attitudes? Well, the same mind that Christ had when he emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Step down, step down, step down, step down, step down. No reputation. Paul says, yeah, that. Do that. Have that mind. And in a church where this sort of attitude prevails, where we do this for one another, it's really hard to imagine that any disease of sin could survive in that environment. Such unity, such love, such accord and agreement and harmony. What room is there for sin to gain a foothold? Where does division happen in a church like that? This sort of humility can fortify our church against division. God's been gracious to this church in protecting us from that sort of division so far. And having this mind of Christ will continue that fortified, strong sense of unity that protects this church from division so that Emmanuel Church can be a happy, loving church 50 years from now. So Emmanuel Church member, last thing I'll say. I think any of your four pastors would in a heartbeat relish the opportunity to add their voices to Paul's here. Ben Allen, Mike Clark, Alex DePrima, Brad Kennison, any one of these brothers I think would cherish the opportunity to stand in front of you with this passage in hand and say to you, complete my joy, Emmanuel Church, by being of one mind. Oh, it would make us so happy if you love us Gladden our hearts by being unified, sharing one mind and one love. Cause the elders to praise God by being of the same mind. I think they would love to have that opportunity. So Emmanuel Church, share the same love. Be of one accord, and that fully 
share one mind. The Blackburns and the Sangers should be of one mind. The Pembertons and the Bonners and the Cartledges, the Hobarts, should be of one mind in full accord. The things that are true about the Father, about the Spirit, and about our Lord Christ demand that we put aside any inclination for self-centeredness or self-seeking. Brothers, sisters, let's lay these things aside. Lay aside self-centeredness and may we embrace the humility of Christ who is meek and lowly from his heart. By God's grace, let us do these things and let us share the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so sinful. When we read about things like selfishness and self-centeredness and conceit and vainglory and pride, Lord, we see these things in our attitudes, in our thoughts, in our dispositions, in our behaviors so often. And Lord, we hate them. God, we want to be rid of them. We want to be people that do take a sincere and wholehearted interest in the needs of others and not of ourselves. But Lord, it is so hard to do. But you know our frame. You remember that we're dust. So God, please, we ask you for your help. Help us to be of one mind. Help us to be fully accorded with one another. Help us, Lord, to take an increased and renewed interest in the needs and the celebrations and the trials of our brothers and sisters next to us. God, make these things true about us. Let Emmanuel Church be a church that truly has Christ's mind in this area. We'll give you the glory for any progresses that we see in this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.